European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 42, Issue 10. Focus Issue, Interventional Cardiology, by Editor-in-Chief, Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Challenges in Interventional Cardiology. Embolic Complications, Cancer Patients, and Antithrombotic Therapy Duration. In this issue, we are publishing the first contribution of a new series authored by none other than Professor Eugene Braunwald, one of our true legends. Professor Braunwald has kindly agreed to share with us his thoughts, ideas, and musings in short contributions for the Braunwald's Corner series. They will span from the history of cardiology to his vision of the future of cardiology. Professor Braunwald was forced to leave Vienna in 1938 when he was a nine-year-old and emigrated to New York, where he graduated first in his class from the New York University of Medicine. This was the beginning of an extraordinary scientific and academic career. His seminal contributions, published in the last 60 years, range from cardiac mechanics to ischemic heart disease, valvular heart disease, and heart failure. Professor Braunwald is a living example to us all, and in particular for our younger colleagues, of how intelligence, optimism, determination and confidence in science can allow us to overcome even the darkest moments in our history. On behalf of the editorial board, I am grateful to Professor Braunwald, a scientist and a gentleman, for his ongoing dedication to the European Heart Journal. The first of these pieces is entitled Cardiology in 2021, and we hope that this marks the first of many such wonderful contributions. This issue continues with an ESC report, Cardiovascular Health After Menopause Transition, Pregnancy Disorders and Other Gynecological Conditions, a consensus document from the European Cardiologists, Gynecologists and Endocrinologists. Authored by Angela Maas from the Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, Netherlands and colleagues. The authors note that women undergo important changes in their sex hormones throughout their lifetime that can impact cardiovascular disease risk. Whereas the traditional cardiovascular risk factors dominate in older age, there are several female-specific risk factors and inflammatory risk variables that importantly influence a woman's risk at younger and middle age. Hypertensive pregnancy disorders and gestational hypertension are associated with a higher risk in younger women. Menopause transition has an additional adverse effect to aging that may demand specific attention to ensure an acceptable cardiovascular risk profile and quality of life. In this position paper, we provide an update of obstetric and gynecological conditions that interact with cardiovascular risk in women, including pregnancy disorders, menopause, and other endocrine and gynecological conditions. Practice points for clinical use are given according to the latest standards from various related disciplines. This consensus document provides a summary of the views of an expert panel organized by the Task Force on Gender for the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC, and an ad hoc multidisciplinary ESC working group on women's health in menopause. This issue then continues with a focus on interventional cardiology in a special article entitled The Year in Cardiovascular Medicine 2020 – Interventional Cardiology 
Fernando Alfonso from the Hospital Universitario de la Princesa in Madrid, Spain and colleagues note that percutaneous coronary interventions, or PCI, constitute the most widely used revascularization modality in patients with coronary artery disease, or CAD. The past year witnessed major advances in the treatment of patients with acute coronary syndromes, or ACS, and acute myocardial infarction, or AMI, including both ST-segment elevation and non-ST-segment elevation, together with the presentation of a new clinical practice guideline. Management of patients with chronic coronary syndrome with demonstrable ischemia has been specifically addressed by a new pivotal randomized trial. Significant advances in the treatment of specific lesion subsets, together with novel data on long-term results of interventional devices, have been published. Moreover, the value of physiological assessment before and after PCI has been consolidated, whereas new coronary imaging trials shed new light on the never-ending quest of the vulnerable plaque and advances in antithrombotic management, particularly addressing the very short-duration regimens, have been presented. Finally, the authors highlight that without any doubt, 2020 will be remembered as the year of the pandemic. Indeed, coronavirus disease 19, or COVID-19, has drastically disrupted healthcare around the world, posing unprecedented challenges in the care of patients with cardiovascular diseases, and CAD in particular. Silent brain infarcts, or SBI, are frequently identified after transcatheter aortic valve implantation, or TAVI, and also after transcatheter ablation of atrial fibrillation, when patients are screened with diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging, or DWMRI. Outside the cardiac literature, SBIs have been correlated with progressive cognitive dysfunction, however their prognostic utility after TAVI remains uncertain. In a clinical research article, silent brain infarcts and early cognitive outcomes after transcatheter aortic valve implantation, a systematic review and meta-analysis. K. Voldendorp from the University of Sydney in Australia and colleagues sought to explore the incidence of and potential risk factors of SBI after TAVI and the effect of SBI on early postoperative cognitive dysfunction or PCD. A systematic literature review was performed to identify all publications reporting SBI incidents, as detected by DWMRI after TAVI. SBI incidents, baseline characteristics, and the incidence of PCD were evaluated via meta-analysis and meta-regression models. The authors identified 39 relevant studies. Out of 2,171 patients, who underwent post-procedural DWMRI, 1,601 were found to have at least one new SBI. Pooled effect size 0.76, 95% confidence interval 0.72 to 0.81. The incidence of reported stroke with focal neurological deficits was 3%. Meta-regression showed that diabetes, chronic renal disease, 3-Tesla MRI, and predilation were associated with increased SBI risk. The prevalence of early PCD increased during follow-up at 16% at 10 days to 26% at 6.1 months, 
and meta-regression suggested an association between the mean number of new SBI and incidence of PCD. The use of cerebral embolic protection devices, or CEPD, did not decrease the overall incidence of SBI. The authors conclude that SBI are common after TAVI and predicted by diabetes, kidney disease and predilation. While higher numbers of new SBIs appear to adversely affect early neurocognitive outcomes, long-term follow-up studies remain necessary as TAVI expands to low-risk patient populations. The use of CEPD did not result in a significant decrease in the occurrence of SBI. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Samir Kapadia from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in the US and colleagues. The authors note that a large, well-powered clinical trial is needed to fully understand the short and long-term clinical significance of SBI post-TAVAR and whether the risk of SBI and stroke can be reduced with CEPD. Among patients discharged following PCI, two serious complications may potentially occur. Rehospitalization for ischemic complications such as stent thrombosis AMI and bleeding complications. Patients with cancer are particularly predisposed to these complications as cancer is considered a hypercoagulable state with platelet activation and aggregation and the presence of malignancy has been shown to be an independent predictor of stent thrombosis. Among patients with cancer, thrombocytopenia may be induced by chemotherapy that increases the propensity towards bleeding complications. Furthermore, cancers such as primary and secondary tumours in the gastrointestinal tract pose increased risk of major bleeding complications. Yet there are no published data around the incidence of such complications in this population post-discharge, hence no outcomes data to gain insight into optimal antiplatelet therapy in this high-risk population. In a clinical research article entitled Percutaneous Coronary Intervention in Cancer Patients and Readmission Within 90 Days for Acute Myocardial Infarction and Bleeding in the United States. Chun Ching Kwok and colleagues from the Keele University in Stoke-on-Trent, United Kingdom, evaluated the rates of readmission within 90 days for AMI and bleeding among patients with cancer who underwent PCI. Patients treated with PCI in the years from 2010 to 2014 in the US Nationwide Readmission Database were evaluated for the influence of cancer on 90-day readmission for AMI and bleeding. About 2 million patients were included in the analysis, 2.7% active cancer. The 90-day readmission for AMI after PCI was higher in patients with active cancer, 12.1% in lung, 10.8% in colon, 7.5% in breast, 7% in prostate, and 9.1% for all cancers, compared to 5.6% among patients with no cancer. The 90-day readmission for bleeding after PCI was higher in patients with active cancer, 4.2% in colon, 1.5% in lung, 1.4% in prostate, 0.6% in breast, and 1.6% in all cancers, compared to 0.6% among patients with no cancer. Kwok and colleagues conclude that following PCI, patients with active cancer have increased risk for readmission for AMI or bleeding, 
with the magnitude of the risk depending on cancer type. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Daniela Cardinale from the Instituto Europeo di Oncologia in Milan, Italy and colleagues. The authors note that due to the continuous improvement in the survival of cancer patients, their cardiovascular care has received increasing attention and demands in this area have and will continue to grow considerably. In this regard, Quark et al. provide another brick in the wall of the evolving literature in this field, supporting the notion that PCI may also be a safe option in cancer patients when their underlying increased ischemia and bleeding risk is carefully weighed and post-PCI treatment is targeted accordingly. In a state-of-the-art review entitled Patient-Tailored Antithrombotic Therapy Following Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, Niels van der Sangen and colleagues from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands highlight that dual antiplatelet therapy has long been the standard of care in preventing coronary and cerebrovascular thrombotic events in patients with chronic coronary syndrome and ACS undergoing PCI. But choosing the optimal treatment duration and composition has become a major challenge. Numerous studies have shown that certain patients benefit from either shortened or extended treatment duration. Furthermore, trials evaluating novel antithrombotic strategies such as P2Y12 inhibitor monotherapy, low-dose factor ZAR inhibitors, on top of antiplatelet therapy and platelet function or genotype-guided de-escalation of treatment have shown promising results. Current guidelines recommend risk stratification for tailoring treatment duration and intensity. Although several risk stratification methods evaluating ischemic and bleeding risk are available to clinicians, such as the use of risk scores, platelet function testing and genotyping, risk stratification has not been broadly adopted in clinical practice. Multiple risk scores have been developed to determine the optimal treatment duration, but external validation studies have yielded conflicting results in terms of calibration and discrimination, and there is limited evidence that their adoption improves clinical outcomes. Likewise, platelet function testing and genotyping can provide useful prognostic insights but trials evaluating treatment strategies guided by these stratification methods have produced mixed results. This review critically appraises the currently available antithrombotic strategies and provides a viewpoint on the use of different risk stratification methods alongside clinical judgment in current clinical practice. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum manuscripts. In a contribution entitled association between device-related thrombos and the neo-appendage with left atrial appendage occlusion devices. Ashral Rashid from the Monash University in Melbourne, Australia comment on the recent publication entitled Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion with the Amplitzer Amulet Device Full Results of the Prospective Global Observational Study by David Hildick-Smith and colleagues from the Brighton and Sussex University Hospital in Brighton, United Kingdom. Hildick Smith and colleagues respond in a separate contribution. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.